there's so few people, I think, willing to open up the doors. And let me be very clear. I'm not suggesting that funeral homes start opening up the back doors and saying, we want you to see how we involve. Yeah. Come on in. <laughs> visit the chocolate factory. Yeah. Yeah. Come, yeah, here it is. Cremation, come on in. But at the same time, we can share so much more and be so much more transparent. And I think when we do that, I think families would start appreciating it more. And then you really can set yourself off apart on value. Because now yeah. we know the secret sauce. I get it. Yeah, you're up late. You do all this. You're on call. Then you can start breaking it apart. Welcome to the Direct Cremation Podcast with your hosts, Tyler Yamasaki and Will DeMichaelis. Today's guest is a death care lawyer, a funeral director, multiple business owner, philanthropist, and a published author. His book, Cover Your Ass, The Ultimate Guide to Protecting Your Business, is an invaluable and entertaining look into policies, procedures, and mindsets that you should take to make your business better. Maybe you've seen him making cocktails during the pandemic on Facebook... Uh, or maybe he's helped you make your cremation authorization. Either way, I'd like to introduce Paul LeMasters. Man, I need to copy that intro. That was, <laughs> you're very kind. Thank you. Welcome, Paul. I don't think I said anything that wasn't true, right? No, you did. I was just like, man, who is this guy? <laughs> so oh, you have a drink with him. <laughs> so there's so much that we can talk about today, but yeah. why don't we start at the beginning? Lawyer, funeral director, author, where'd you come from and how'd you get here? <laughs> yeah, that is the beginning. I won't go all the way back, but I will say first questions I get a lot is where, what was first, law or death care? And it in fact was death care. I was funeral director first. I uh, loved it. Still love death care. Obviously, it's what I still put most 99% of my life into. But I hit a point where I wanted to do a little bit more and had been working about 15, 20 years almost in death care and decided to go to law school at night. So was working at a funeral home, went to law school every night. It was quite funny because I quickly was known as the dead law guy. And just to put dates on this, I remember my pager going off <laughs> while I was in class and I'd have to excuse myself. And it was like, sometimes I'd have to go make a death call. Sometimes I could wait. But anyway, when I got done, I, I had this dream of putting it all together. It was kind of an interesting road. We're not going to go down the whole thing, but fast forward, eventually I created what I have today. And that is a company, LaMasters Consulting, one of my companies where I work entirely within death care, funeral homes, cemeteries, crematories, human side, pet side. But that's kind of the road I took. It's really cool. That's a really interesting path and background, Paul. Thanks, Will. Yeah. With a lot of deaths happening every year, there's a kind of a critical path that happens with each death. But how often in your world do you come across a new or never seen scenario regarding the legal side of death care? Great question. And actually, when I do programs, actually, one of the things I tell people is I said, early on, I thought that quickly I would have seen and heard everything and, you know, been like, oh, well, oh, yeah, I know what's going on here. I had this. Well, I've had this. And what's amazing is that I am seeing more uh, diverse and new issues all the time. And what's really kind of amazing is I think two things are happening. One, our culture is changing. And I think people expect so much more now than they ever did. I always tell people we are smarter now than we've ever been. And that is a 
I'm being very facetious. We are not smarter than we have ever been, but we have so much out there that we have so many self-proclaimed experts on every topic in the world. So every family you meet, they know more than you do in some level about this. So that's one thing happening. And then throw in this mix of death care. It's, it's changing. One of my first programs I did, I remember this just begrudging gentleman and literally stood up. He said, man, I've been buried. It was a cemetery conference. He says, I've been burying people for 50 years. He said, the hole's still the same size. And uh, <laughs> he's like, you got nothing new. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's what's wrong. Because right now, it is so different. We have, just in the last few years, we've got alkaline hydrolysis. We've got composting. I mean, yeah. it is evolving just beyond what anybody, I think, could ever even think of. So, yeah, when my phone rings, I normally am like, wow, I had it happen literally today. Somebody called me and said, Paul, here's what we got. And it, was, it wasn't the craziest thing in the world, but I'd never had it happen before. Right. And it was a, a cremation issue. They're like, have you ever heard of that? And I'm like, no. I haven't, but we got this. Okay. Well, we like to talk about, I mean, we've mentioned it a lot on this podcast that COVID has definitely changed death care in many different ways. Are there any legal issues that have become more common that you're seeing because of us being pushed forward because of COVID? Yeah. So off the bat, the one thing I will say is that because of COVID, it has shined a light on the I'll say bad communication. So what I've seen is an increase in consumer just general complaints. I think a lot of this is due to the fact that we, being the death care profession, kind of created this world where it was face-to-face and I got to shake your hand and I need to show you this and I need you to touch and feel and understand everything going on. And then we went to this, I had people calling me, Paul, have you ever heard of electronic signatures? And I said, yeah, I have. I've been talking about this for 15 years. Most businesses are now using them. And they're like, so it's legal? And I'm like, yeah, it's legal. So we went from this face-to-face business model. And then overnight, basically, we couldn't see anybody. And I think a lot of death care professionals fell on that. And a lot of gaps in communication. And it just any small issues we had, they were so much greater. And then sheer numbers, right? I mean, firms that all of a sudden they had 15 calls in one day when they had maybe 15 in a month before and they didn't know how to handle it. And again, crematories were backed up. We didn't know how to tell families. That caused a lot of just good old fashioned miscommunication issues. A lot of complaints. Yeah, I, I noticed that with us too. It was hard to make that change. We were used to that volume doing upwards of 20 to 22 cases a day. But the communication part changed when we couldn't handle that the same way as we normally would. So definitely a big wrench. There's been a lot of discussion in the past few years about an update to the FTC funeral rule. And yes. as with most things in death care, things are slow to move. Do you see any big changes happening in death care from the federal level? Yes. So every 10 years, the funeral rule under the FTC, and it's not just the funeral rule, but every rule is supposed to go through a check. The last time everybody, they opened up for comments, everybody typically, in the past, everybody said, hey, leave it the way it is, we're fine. And again, the last time this happened, the FTC got all the uh, opinions and comments. And then I think it was eight years later, they said, we're gonna leave it the way it is. So this time the comments came out 
interestingly enough, when the comments came out, it was right when COVID was hitting. We actually got an extension to file comments for six months because it was right in the midst of COVID. Mm -hmm. And when it was all said and done, here we were. Everybody had filed comments. The problem is, is there were some drastic differences this time. First of all, the FTC had some very specific issues that they were worried about. One of the biggest ones was online presence. The FTC, through push by a lot of consumer advocates, felt it was important that funeral providers make a better online presence, including pricing online. It was one of the main questions that was asked. And what also happened was that there were several associations that responded to the FTC saying that, yes, it's time. We need to update this online presence. I helped author through our membership and other folks in the ICCFA and members, and we did not ask them to change it. We've said that we're fine the way it is, and if there's any further guidance or regulation, it should be at a state level. However, that is not the message that went out from other associations, and it's also not the message that came from states. There was a letter that was signed by 47 different attorney generals from 47 states saying we need to update the rule. I share all this because it seems like there's a bigger push now to change it. Not only do the consumers say, yeah, it should change, we actually have associations and attorney generals. The other interesting thing where there were actually two FTC commissioners that before the rule comment period went out, they wrote an open letter and they said, it is time to get this updated and we need to. And so you've got the commissioners wanting it to change. So fast forward, everybody files comments. Well, then we have an election. The FTC commission loses a couple people because we have a change in parties and it becomes a mess. The FTC for almost a year and a half doesn't even have the five people to vote on anything. So it becomes very stagnant. Then very recently, actually, this was, I think, just back like in April, the FTC did something that they had been pushed to do for years and years and years. And that was to go after the heritage legacy cremation services that many, many state boards have had issues with. It's a group out of uh, Florida. It basically, they found a middle ground to try to serve families through direct cremation online. However, they do not actually do the cremation. They hire another unit. Anyway, there's been a lot of problems. Families have had a lot of complaints and there's been some fraud and the states have gone after them, done anything. And lo and behold, the FTC finally went after them. I share this because it seems like it's the perfect storm of anything and everything that could ever happen to say the funeral rule needs updated for it to happen. I don't want it to change, <laughs> but I do believe that there's so much out there right now that the FTC eventually is going to say, we're going to rewrite it. We're going to update it. We're going to do something. Sorry, that uh, was a long answer. No, no, <laughs> that was great. <laughs> going back to the heritage legacy thing, because we work with customers who create like this branded layer on top of other providers who they have an agreement with a crematory or something to do their cremations and do the pickups and stuff like that. So what exactly was Heritage and Legacy doing? You know, be, just be, besides the customer service being horrendous and stuff, like what were they actually doing that was illegal that got them in trouble? Yeah, so under the FTC side of it, they were basically providing goods and services, which is that means you're a funeral provider because they were selling merchandise and providing cremation services 
So that means they have to fall under the funeral rule, but then they weren't following the guidelines, not giving out price lists. They were unlicensed in many states they were servicing. Now that's not an FTC, but that's where the state issues came in. The FTC, you know, under the funeral rule, there's some very big catch-alls. And really the FTC in all respects is meant to protect consumers. The funeral rule is meant to be transparent so people know exactly what they're getting. So one of the things that they want to make sure is that, that there is nothing misleading about a business. And that's where they catch them. So they're making a list. Okay, you didn't give out a price list. But overall, here you have a provider. And the other thing that always frustrates me, they use the term legacy and heritage. And those are very common terms of funeral homes. So there's a lot of legacy and heritage named firms out there. But this, it's not them. Specifically, this was Anthony Damiano. I think that's how he says it. Uh, but anyway, so they were falsely saying that they were in local areas. So they have great SEO, right? Mm -hmm. You type cremation, Cincinnati, Ohio, and boom, there they are, top of the list. And you think that they're right down the street. When in fact, you call, they're in Florida. And then what they do, they get the call, they turn around and they shop it and say, hey, we have a trade call that we need you to do. Right. So that was part of that deception. Um, they didn't, again, they didn't give out prices. And one of the other big things they would do is they would hold cremated remains until payments were received on a lot of cases, even though they were messed up. And that's also a violation. So there are quite a few things they did. Got it. Makes sense. What's some of the weirdest or outdated laws you see in death care today? So, I mean, since we're talking about them, one of the problems I think across the board is that death care, for the most part, all the laws, rules that were written, they're pre-internet, they're pre-anything. So right. the problem is, is you have all of these laws that are written so that every funeral home is meant to live in its own state and a brick and mortar and everybody's going to walk in and they're going to do business. So most states don't take into consideration dealing with what happens. I mean, look, we live in a very mobile society. It's very likely that LaMaster's funeral home in Cincinnati, I could easily be serving two and three states that are nearby. And as far as that go, there's no reason through the internet, a family from California doesn't say, man, this guy looks really cool. You know, we used to live in Cincinnati. Let's call him and see if he can help us while we're here. So none of our laws really handle that interstate commerce. But mm -hmm. then really just the internet in general, it's my biggest frustration. Tyler, you know, I've had many conversations over this. <laughs> yeah. New York. just not built to handle electronic signatures. You know, there's so many laws out there that like for a cremation authorization form, they require it to be witnessed or notarized. And it's like, there's other ways now, people. We live in a very electronic friendly mm -hmm. world. And in some of these laws, yeah, let's pick on New York. New York won't even allow you. So wait, they didn't allow you to do electronic signature. Then COVID, they said, all right, we give in, we're going to let you. And then they changed it back afterwards. <laughs> it's like you were there. You did it. You dipped your toe in the pool of electronic signatures. And then they pulled it back. What's the incentive for that? I don't know. I was so excited when that happened. I remember <laughs> they updated the law and I was like, all right, COVID has pushed us. We're in. Yeah, we've, we've <laughs> finally made yeah. strides in New York. And then all of a sudden they reverted it back. And we were like, 
back to where we started. Yeah. Of all the laws out there, that's probably one of my biggest frustrations is just this general idea of how hard it is just to be able to work within the electronic world, the media. It's hard. Yeah. I mean, we're using a law that's 30, no, 30 something years, 40 years old now, right? Almost. Yeah. 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 So common. (laughs) So I really want to get into your book. How did you come into writing a book? Yeah. I've been thinking about it for years and I had this idea of all these things. And actually the way the book ended up is not anywhere where it started. I had this crazy idea. One of the most common things as I deal with things is I see how these, any business, not just death care, but businesses in general, they just really fail to have any good policies and procedures and methods of business management. And that was like the root of all these problems, poor communication and My original idea was I was going to write this book about policies and procedures. And I started to write it. And I actually had a woman that I'd met and she was going to help me, you know, ghostwriter, like help me kind of put it all together. And I was like, okay, I'm ready. I'm doing it. And as we started, I started putting it on paper and writing it. I quickly realized something. It was boring. I mean, it was (laughs) horrible. I was like, who in the world is ever going to read a book about policies and procedures? So as we're talking through this, I'd always for years ended every program with this idea of cover your ass, CYA. I always have a slide that says that. And then it hit me and I said, you know what? I'm looking at the wrong way. Really, I need to write a book about cover your ass. And then I'll just blend in the policies and procedures as I do different chapters. So Mm -hmm. I reached out to her. I was like, hey, I want to switch this up. One interesting thing to know about her is she normally, she does a lot of Christian books, like they're very faith-based and very wholesome and all that. So this was like my (laughs) ultimate gut check. So I said, look, I want to redo this book, the chapters, the information will be the same. It's just, I'm just going to do it different. She said, all right, what's your plan? And then I explained about how it's going to be called cover your ass. And every <laughs> chapter is going to be like on a different ass in your in the business world. We'll have a lazy ass, the dumb ass. I'm picturing her. I'm like seeing her crossing herself and, you know, <laughs> like going, oh my gosh. And she just started laughing and she said, this is the greatest idea. I would love to do this. And I thought if I didn't offend her, I'm in. Right. So we had a blast. And, uh, but it was a process. All in, I bet you it was a probably three years wow. of writing. Yeah, well, it came out great. One of the most interesting chapters that I found super interesting and I resonated with was the uh, kiss-ass chapter. Yeah. <laughs> and in that, you talk a lot and illustrate an idea where funeral directors like to use euphemisms and flowery or prettier language to kind of protect the family from hearing harsh language or descriptions about what's going to be happening to their families. Yeah. So much so that in the book, you mentioned how it actually causes an issue with someone getting embalmed because the funeral director was like afraid to use the word embalming on, yeah. on their loved one. What is your general stance on what the public can actually handle if you're a funeral director? My thing, and I've always say this, families are willing and wanting to know more than we typically ever want to share. Right. We guard what we do so much. And again, go back to the beginning, right? They know more than we do when they get there. Like they expect, they've already read, they know all this. So I don't know why we've put this shroud of 
coverage on what we do, but we're afraid to use the words. We're afraid to show pictures. Like literally, we are literally afraid to let somebody take a picture of a deceased body. I still, my mind gets blown by that. People are like, Paul, I got a family and you're going to believe this. They want to take a picture of their dead mom. And I'm like, that's great. And they're like, wait, I thought we weren't allowed. I said, not only are you allowed in the perfect world, I want you to be taking pictures for identification and all that. And we've just made everything so secretive and we're so risk adverse that anything's going to go wrong. But yeah, it, it all the way. And then there is another piece to this, though. I jokingly say that we try to make people feel better, right? That's, I think, the deep down goal of a funeral director or any death care profession is you want this family, you're trying to console them. Well, how do you console them? Well, you don't console them by saying things like, all right, your mom's here. Man, she looks horrible. You're never going to be able to see her again. I mean, yeah. she's a wreck. And right. you know what I mean? So what do yeah. you do? And you say, so we, we got to do more than embalmer. We got to do all this heavy. So what we do is we go to the complete opposite. And we just, if it's okay, we'd like to prepare your mom so you have some time with her. We don't say visitation. We don't say viewing. We don't say embalming for sure. And we hide everything because we want these people, these families to feel good. So we don't want to use any negative words. And it really creates a big gap in communication. I couldn't agree with you more, Paul. And on the flip side, I would say that the company I worked for, Omega, and my family's business, we took the opposite approach. We felt that we weren't protecting anybody by leaving out language or not explaining exactly what we were doing. I guess covering our ass so that we could honestly explain what we were doing and how we were handling their loved one. And we found that it actually gave us credibility with families to be transparent. And they really respected that we could talk to them on that level about difficult things. Sure, there were times where you can use a bedside manner to explain things in a courteous way. Yes. And in a way that they would understand that, okay, you're using this language so as not to talk about how messed up my mom's face was or anything like that, so on and so forth. But I found that that opposite approach actually gave us the credibility with our families and the people that recommended them to us. So this secretive approach, I don't think, helps funeral homes do better work or get more calls at all, uh, even though they might think that they're doing a good deed or the right thing or that's how they were trained. I feel that that's a misnomer and just not true. I'm glad and I wish there were more out there. And and this permeates to so many levels. The other one where I, I see this, again, not only do we try to make people feel better emotionally, mm -hmm. and I see this a lot in newer or younger professionals. We believe that we can help people by saving them time and money. So what we do is we basically... I don't want to say misrepresent, that's not the right word, but we sugarcoat things to make them sound better and give them, Tyler, you talked about this, we almost give them a false value and so that we think they're helping them. I'll give you the example, cremation containers. I always ask people, I show a picture of the ultimate number one selling cremation container that a body is placed in in America and it is a cardboard box. Mm -hmm. It is a giant cardboard box and that's it. However, most funeral homes do not call it a cardboard box. They call it a minimum alternative container, mm -hmm. which it is. It's a proper definition, I guess, but that's a very general definition. It doesn't really clearly 
portray it to the family of what it is. It's a giant yeah. cardboard box, people. Yeah, yeah. And in that description, you don't say the material, which is nope. what it is. Why would you not describe it as that? Yeah. Yep. And then what happens is a family, and look, the detriment of the family and the business. So for the family, you have basically decided that that's all they need, that it doesn't matter. You're just going to burn it. I mean, I've heard every reason. Paul, come on. It's not, you know, but at the same time, you're taking the choice. What you believe is making it easier, the family, you've actually removed options and choices from them. And, and you really should do it because I have had and I've seen families upset when they have gone back and mm -hmm. viewed a loved one and they go, what are they in? And they're like, well, this is our alternative container of pressed board. It's not pressed board. It's cardboard. Right. And <laughs> families get upset. And I've literally had people file complaints over that. When all it is, is being open and honest and to the detriment of our business, we have convinced millions of families that all you have to do is put mom in a cardboard box and it doesn't matter when I guarantee you, we don't do that with caskets. You know what I mean? And, and nor should we. A family should have that choice. If a family wants a cardboard box, I think that is a wonderful option. Mm -hmm. I think it's great. But the fact that we basically sugarcoat it and hide the language and hide other options because we're basically just trying to make them feel better. And look, I can keep this cremation to six ninety five, and I know that's going to make you happier. When to me, that can be as insulting as anything. There's a flip side to that argument, Paul, to calling it like <laughs> actually minimum alternative container is a marketing tool to charge for the cardboard box an exorbitant fee of $100 to $150 for something that costs $7.99. Yeah. That's the other side of that coin too. Yeah. And again, that's the beauty of transparency is if you put it all out there and then you put a, a price on it, families then can see exactly what you're talking about. Yep. They can yep. determine if there's the value or not. Yep. And all of a sudden, it changes everything. Yeah. And you're not hiding anything no. from them. Because no, that's where the complaints come. Right, right. Families are upset because they don't know all the pieces. Mm -hmm. And then something goes wrong. And then they go, what else didn't they tell us? Right, right. And then they're skeptical of everything until everything is complete. And I would say Parting Pro yeah. does a great job with their online checkout because of the pictures of the urns and the cremation containers, a picture is worth a thousand words. And you take that ability away from the funeral director to sugarcoat anything by just giving the family of the picture of what they'll actually get and what it actually looks like. And they'll call you and say, hey, I'm looking at this. Is this made out of wood or? It's like, no, it's made out of cardboard. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then you yeah. can clear it up really easily with them. I agree. I love that. I love that. And you're right. A picture is worth a thousand words. I'd say lack of a picture could be worth a million dollars. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Paul, I have a question. And you've been in death care for quite a few years now. Why do you think transparency is always such a topic when it comes to death care? I mean, even when I entered this industry, which was seven or eight years ago, pricing transparency was always this huge thing. Now we're getting into, and you talk about Kiss-Ass, the Kiss-Ass chapter is talking about like not being transparent with your families because you're trying to protect them. And like it always feels like there's this just transparency and there's a secrecy around funeral directing. But in my mind, if one of the biggest issues that I feel death care is coming across right now is being able to succinctly and easily explain the value of what they do to families, right? Because when you don't tell them, oh, well, we have to be on call 24 seven, because if someone dies, we need to go pick them up in a couple hours. Like we need to be able to clean the body. Like why is cleaning a body such a big deal? Like people don't realize what goes into that. 
preparing your, you know, your loved one and all the paperwork that goes behind it. Like, I think if you explain that, families would be a little bit more understanding about pricing and what value you actually bring to the situation. But it seems like in death care, transparency is always this like taboo topic where we don't want to tell everybody. And like, where do you think that came from? It's a great question. I'm going to say maybe it's just a, a lot of old school. You know, mm-hmm. we were built on a very secretive, I mean, go back before the funeral rule, there was no pricing that was really shared. There were no contracts. And it was kind of like, don't worry, we've got this. And it was to protect. And back in the day, you know, you could shake somebody's hand and say, I know he's going to take care of me. And we don't live in that culture anymore. And I just don't think we've kept up with the times. Right. And and I think it's this fear of allowing our profession to make this switch because all of a sudden it's all open. Everything's out there. I hate comparing what we do to other jobs because it's hard. But you look at this and everybody, I think, is afraid. Well, we tell them and everybody knows, quote, the secret sauce, then aren't we all worth the same amount and isn't it the same? A matter of fact, consumer alliances, I've had arguments with them through the years because they believe cremation is one thing. So if it's $9.95, it should be the same price everywhere. But that's not it. And look at Starbucks. I'm a Dunkin' Donuts man. All right. I go to Dunkin' Donuts. I love it. I'll go to Starbucks, but I know I'm going to pay more at Starbucks. And it look, maybe some of their products, I, I guess my thing is, is there's markets for everybody out there in every business. You know, if you go to any of these coffee places, you talk about transparency. I'm watching them make it. I know what's going on. It's not like one's easier than the other. You know what I mean? There's, it's the same, but yet I'm paying very different prices uh, depending on where I go, different experiences and, and different value. And we can do that. But the problem is, is just there's so few people, I think, willing to open up the doors. And let me be very clear. I'm not suggesting that funeral homes start opening up the back doors and saying, we want you to see how we involve. Yeah. Come on in. Come visit the We're chocolate factory. Sh- yeah. Yeah. Come, yeah, here it is. Cremation, come on in. But at the same time, we can share so much more and be so much more transparent. And I think when we do that, I think families would start appreciating it more. And then you really can set yourself off apart on value. Because now yeah. we know the secret sauce. I get it. Yeah, you're up late. You do all this. You're on call. Then you can start breaking it apart. I think there's a lot of fear among legacy funeral directors to share everything and that they fear the result will diminish their business in some way. And I think that that would diminish their control. And I don't think that they really want to give that up at any point. That's why when you guys did parting originally, you had a lot of funeral directors upset that you would just plaster pricing for different funeral homes on the same web page so you can compare apples to apples. It's like, that's not in their best interest to have you compare apples to apples for like Omega Society that's going to do a direct cremation for $700 and they'll do it for $3,000. And the list of everything in their basic services is the same. We're using the same subcontracted transportation company, for goodness sakes. We're filing the same permits. We're filing the same documents with the same health department. There's no difference there. Yeah. No, and I do. And I think that you talk about it that way. And I've kind of said this for some years. I don't know that we as a profession have really figured out how do we really differentiate ourselves from one another, especially in the online world, because you're right. right. When it's computer, it's really tough, but people Mm -hmm. do it. You know what I mean? I look at electronics. If I wanted to buy a TV and I'm on a line and I'm looking at like Best Buy, I'm like, okay, I get it. If I pulled up another site and it was, Paul's Electronic Emporium, 
and I see the same TV for like $200 less, I'm going to sit here and tell you there's a good chance I'm not shopping with Paul. You know what I mean? Right, right. Yeah. There's the same thing, but for some reason, you got to work harder. You got to prove your credibility. You got to prove your value. And that's a new thing to our profession. We mm -hmm. haven't had to do that yet. Yeah. And nobody really has. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The consumer alliances all kind of really want to push for this like online pricing and putting it out there and making everyone do that. And my whole thing is, I don't know if you're going to be protecting the consumer because what I envision happening with that is you're still putting it on the funeral director who doesn't know the internet to try to explain their value by putting a price on their website. And then all of a sudden, you're going to have these corporations like SCI Foundation or Carriage or whatever, who I would say are better at marketing. So they know yeah. how to package something up. And so what you're going to end up having is you're going to have people putting prices up, but you're going to have a website like SCI's who make it look so much nicer than yeah. having to have the local mom and pop put out a website that tries to explain their value in 30 seconds. And I don't actually think it's going to help the consumer per se by making people put certain things on their website. I know that's just my take. No, I no. agree. And I don't know if you read my, uh, again, the ICCFA when we did our opinion and sent in our comments to FTC. It's actually one of the things we talked about is that pricing online, first of all, it should be a business decision. If you want to do it, great. I think it's important. I suggest yeah. everybody does it. Right. But if you don't want to do it, you shouldn't be forced because if everybody's forced, exactly to your point, the people that will succeed will be the bigger operators that have more funds to make it look better and flashier. And in a small town, smaller funeral homes, the mom and pops, they're going to struggle with this because they won't have the ability even though websites are getting easier, they're not that easy. I mean, I've seen death care websites. There's some ferocious websites out there still, right? <laughs> yeah, most definitely. <laughs> yeah. We were that before we got with Parting Pro, to be frank. Do you remember what our old website looked like, Tyler? Unfortunately, it was yeah. literally made in the 90s and hadn't been updated since yeah. then. <laughs> <laughs> to your point, I don't want to see those mom and pop shops in small towns go out of business. And to their credit, I think if they're not forced, I think they know what they have to do to keep their business open. Community outreach, the things that got them there in the first place, the yeah. handshakes, the credibility of the family in the town, those things I hope stick around in those markets. I think in larger markets and more metro areas, this race to the bottom with an online presence to get your SEO, get a good website up. When we changed our website, we looked at it as an opportunity to display our value in a really meaningful way online so that it was like a business profile that someone could go through. And if, if you got through the website and you could tell who we are and what was important to us as a business in terms of serving you, then we've done our job in designing that website and doing a good job displaying our value to families. And if they choose us because of that, we're going to do a great job for you. No, I agree. And to show this in action of how powerful it is, mm. look at how well the whole reason the FTC is going after this firm out of Florida is because what were they able to do? They were able to capitalize on SEO mm -hmm. and basically pop up in every city across the U.S. So right. that's the problem is everybody has to do pricing and that's what we're going on. It's really, you can see the best website SEO is going to have first shot at every family out there. Right, right. And, and I agree, there has to be more rules and regulations behind that regarding the funeral establishment and yeah. and disclosures there about where your loved one is being taken. 
and communication. If you're using your website to avoid communicating with families about what they may not like about your back office operations, that's scumbag material. (laughs) (laughs) We can go a lot on your book. I really found it super enjoyable, but I actually want to get into some of the other things that you do because you do a lot. And so I want to give you the opportunity to kind of talk about that. One of the things that I really, really think is super valuable, and we've seen this with all of our very successful funeral homes, is that the phone etiquette and answering the phone is super important. And you have a company called Dead Ringers. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Again, it goes back to the FTC. There were people that were basically, I mean, telephone shopping is not like anything new, right? That's been going on for years. You call up a business and you see how they do. In death care, one of my frustrations was that there were people doing it, but they weren't really collecting any data. And it was not objective. All it was was this like, and again, this is the lawyer in me. I hate the word feel. That just, you know, I'm not good at that. I don't want to feel anything. I need objective data. So we did dead ringers because I wanted to know where people giving the prices that are required under the FTC. That was one of the objective data points I wanted to measure. And then in doing that, we created this basically system that we could measure 10 different areas on a phone call objectively. So a typical phone shopping experience is somebody uh, calls a business and then they have a script that they basically read and they listen to how you respond. We built ours very differently. We don't have a script for the people that call. We use questions that are either open or closed-ended to evoke a conversation. And then when the call's over, we evaluate that conversation. They then, the, the our callers from Dead Ringers, they fill out a 100-plus question survey of everything that just happened. And then that gives us this objective data because, for example, what we learned from it is that funeral directors, when you ask them open-ended questions, they start to shine. But if mm-hmm. you ask closed-ended questions, funeral directors, man, they are. And, and this is funeral and cremation and cemetery. This is death care. And this is almost all. We shop other businesses. But they give you an answer. They're smart. They know the answer. But then that's all they do. They don't want to talk. They're tired. It's the end of the day. So one of my favorite questions is to ask provider if they sell urns. Now, I know the answer. Hopefully, they're going to say yes. <laughs> and the problem we had is normally we tell our shoppers, don't don't reach. That's their job to give you. So after you have gotten your answer, wait. If they don't do anything else, then end it. We had to give them instruction on some of these questions to poke at them a little more because when we would call and say, do you sell urns? The number one answer was yes. And then the follow-up response was, okay, bye. (laughs) And that was it. It was like the biggest softball question in the world. Like if I'm a business and I sell urns and somebody says, hey, do you sell urns? My answer is going to be, yes. Can I ask why you need an urn? Isn't that like just boom? I mean, this is the softball. Yeah, we sell urns. Do you have a death? Do you mean, are you looking to bury cremated remains? I mean, and they don't. So anyway... We've built dead ringers and not only to evaluate the calls, but then we've now got training in place. Nikki Wiedemann, who was a corporate trainer at Forethought for 20 plus years and handled pre-need training and all that. She is our kind of our go-to trainer. So we do calls, we do on-site webinar training, all that. And uh, it's been a blast. We've got a lot of data and it's just some fun statistical stuff. I'll share one more and then I'll shut up. I promise. And that is 
when you call and somebody, the question might start off with, hey, I was calling because my mom's in hospice. What we would envision happening is someone were to say something like, I'm sorry to hear about that. Or the ultimate, I'm sorry to hear about that. What's your mom's name? Mm. And less than 10% of the people actually ask for the name of the potential deceased. No one basically ever asks that. It ranges because we keep live data. It's been as low as under 5%. Where here I am calling and telling you my mom's about to die and you don't even ask my mom's name. It's only about 20% of the people that even ask my name. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Anyway, it's just train wreck. It's such a shame. I think there's a lot of poor training in terms of phone conversations and having those in funeral homes. It's kind of just like, just listen to everyone around you, try to pick up on what they do and yep. try to get as good as you can, as fast as you can. And that, may, and that, I takes, agree. that takes years. It takes oh, years to get through that. It does. All those permutations of conversations that you deal with. Well, and to your point, exactly. The idea is, is I think we live in a society that thinks, well, since we walk around and we're basically connected to a phone, it's an automatic that everybody knows how to use it when it's the opposite. Mm-hmm. Because we live with it so much, we have forgotten etiquette on the phone. We just right. think it's like, I mean, it's just like, hey, what's up? Like, I don't even... When I get a phone call, I don't even say hello anymore. Hey, you know what I mean? I like call people and they're like, hey, what are you doing? That's how we start off. And some of these are like clients. Mm. And it's just, we've lost it all. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Real quick, let's go ahead and talk about your good deeds, like co-drive. Do you want to maybe explain a little bit about what that is and how people can get involved? Yeah, absolutely. Long ago, it's over 10 years now. I mean, the quick story is, for Christmas one year, took the kids, said, we're going to go buy some coats. We bought four brand new coats and we gave them to local St. Vincent de Paul so they could be handed out. And I wanted to teach my kids about giving instead of receiving. And it worked out great because the next year they asked me if we were going to do that coat thing again and give out more coats. And it's pretty hard to tell your kids that, no, we only do nice things once every other, I don't know. So (laughs) I said, no, no, we'll do it again. So with the second year, we got a few more coats. And then by the third year, we kind of made it a bigger thing. And we started trying to get people to donate money and we bought coats. So one of the unique things about our program, we actually don't collect coats, we collect money. And part of our program is we give coats to kids and we want them to get brand new coats because we feel like there should be pride in ownership. I mean, it's great to have a warm coat, but it's even better when you're shopping and getting your own brand new coat, not a hand-me-down. And Mm. we've just grown it every year a little bit more. And this last year, we ended up raising close to $50,000. We gave out almost 2,000 brand new coats. And, you know, we, we strive to do it every year. And One of the ways we've been doing it is I do a lot of different things to raise money. I've made card games. We still produce what's called Corpses Attempt Hilarity, a a spinoff of Cards Against Humanity. We have Corpses Attempt Hilarity, two versions, and uh, they're hilarious for death care. And all the money goes to the nonprofit. And then when COVID hit, I started drinking excessively, a lot of alcohol. (laughs) And uh, and you're not the only one. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) somehow we spun that, turned it into a cocktail show that we did every night during COVID. And we still do this cocktail show and we turned it into a way to raise money. So we sold blue. We started a little bar called the Blue Monkey Quarantina. 
We have a little speakeasy in our house. We have merchandise. We wrote a book on our first 60 cocktails. And last year we did a telethon so people could donate to get a drink. And I stayed up for 24 hours straight and made two cocktails every hour for 24 hours. And wow. uh, so, you know, did you drink them? I drank many of them, but I <laughs> tasted every one. And we're going to do that again this year. We're going to do telethon year two. And we're going to go to 75 cocktails in 24 hours. Wow. <laughs> but anyway, we've been lucky. I've been blessed. I do believe you have to give back. Matter of fact, even the uh, Cover Your Ass book, I wanted to donate some of that money back. But on that one, I actually went to an outside charity. I was curious if there was an organization that helped save asses. I figured if I'm saving business asses, surely there's <laughs> somebody who's saving real donkeys out there. And there is. So we work with a group, it's called the Peaceful Donkey Reserve. And anyway, a portion of every book goes to them. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So we try. Yeah. You gotta just, have fun. Yeah. Just to be clear, there is pictures in there. So it is a picture book if you're if you're scared oh, yeah. of too many words. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that's for my own benefit. Yeah. <laughs> well, one of our final questions we've been asking our guests, and we want to ask you, what do you think death care looks like in 10 years? I really should probably have one positive, one negative, but here's where I think it's going to be. You can determine whether it's positive or negative. I think we're going to see a shortage of directors. Right. I think we're really running in. I go to a lot of mortuary schools. Enrollment is not what it used to be. We're on the verge of an exodus of baby boomers mm -hmm. in Gen X that are going to be leaving our field. And I think there's going to be a big gap there it's going to be tough to fill. So I think it's really going to put a strain on how we handle death care. So and in the next 10 years, I think that'll really shine a light. We're, I think we're going to be forced to change licensing and regulation mm -hmm. to try to make our business adapt, not to the shortage, but adapt to what it now is, right? It's online. Mm -hmm. Every funeral director doesn't have to know how to embalm a body anymore. Yeah. So I think that's one big change. And then... The other one is disposition. I think it's going to continue to change. We've seen alkaline hydrolysis. We've seen composting. I think green burial. I think all of these are going to become more and more, not only accepted, but more and more of, of a demand. I would agree with you there. I think that's going to take a little time because I think price points for the average person are so high for those alternative dispositions. But yep. yeah, I agree with you. Now, yeah. I will say what I hope we as a profession do is, you know, I always use this analogy. I'm a big fan of organic food. I like natural food and all that. Now, what's funny about that is natural food, you pay more for it, right? I mean, yeah. if I go, uh, literally, if there's two things of strawberries and one's organic and one's, you know, apparently chemical ridden and going to kill me, they're, <laughs> the organic, they're a buck more for the, a quart of them and I pay it. Mm -hmm. I hope we as a profession are smart enough to realize that some of these new forms of disposition demand that they should be more because they are natural and they are more intense. There's more value there for not only the family, but for the environment. And I hope that they ramp these up and don't fall to this, what we did with cremation and say, I can do it for less. All right. Well, thank you, Paul. Where can people find you? So if you're wanting, I guess, the consulting side, death care, then just uh, lamastersconsulting.com. 
Paul, P-O-U-L. Yeah, my mom's Danish and thought that'd be a fun, <laughs> quirky thing to handle all life. P-O-U-L at LaMastersConsulting.com. But if you just want to have some fun and see the CYA life, go to the CYA life. Dot com, T-H-E-C-Y-A-Life.com. And you can find out all sorts of stuff. There's even a couple fun little videos on there and learn about the donkey rescue. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's probably easiest. And of course, I mean, if you want to keep going and have fun, join us on Sunday nights at the Blue Monkey Quarantina. You can find <laughs> us on YouTube, Twitch, and Facebook. Wow. All right. And just for everyone, the CYA Life website is safe for work, even though I liked in your book how you had a... Uh, you had a whole section talking about the grammatically correct way to add <laughs> everything you were saying. And you had this like whole argument about for and against putting it together. And I thought that was hilarious. Trust me, I think the book's a fun read. Actually, I give credit to my son. My son is 17 and, of course, looks at all this and is like, oh, my gosh. And I get it, though. He's like, you really talk about some serious stuff, but it's fun. And I said, yeah. that that's the ultimate goal. Nobody wants to sit and listen to a lawyer tell you about how you can get in trouble and get sued and go out of business. But when you start talking about covering your ass and you can have a little fun and laugh along the way, it sure makes it a lot easier. Yep. Cool. Well, I think we got it. I wanted to thank you again, Paul, for joining us on the Direct Commission podcast. Thank you both, man. I had a blast today. Yeah. For the podcast, I'm Tyler Yamasaki with Will DeMichaelis. Thanks a lot for listening. Catch you next time. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. If you ever want to know more, please find us at directcremation.com. 